We need to applaud Norm for his announcements because this is so painful for him. We just affirm you, brother. Okay, it was not an apparition. Greg was here last week. Did anyone see him? Okay, he has left the building, but only for one week. He had made the speaking commitment a long time ago, and so he asked Paul and I to fill in one more time, but he will be back next week, I promise. This morning you're stuck with Paul and I. So let's pray about that. <laughs> let's pray especially for Paul. No. <laughs> Father, we lift this time up to you. We are just so grateful to be in your presence, to be with other people who love you and long to worship you. And we just pray that our praises this morning would, um, would honor you and glorify you and bring you joy. And we ask, too, for this next bit of time that your spirit would be at work because we know that you know where each of us is. We are all in different places, spiritually, physically, emotionally, relationally. So it's my prayer this morning that your spirit would touch each of us right where we are, that you would tailor this message to each one of us so that we would leave here knowing that we have interacted with the power of God. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, you may have noticed out in the lobby, we've got some tables set up, some big black and white signs. We are having a Kingdom Opportunities Fair. And out there, they're going to be looking for people. Who would like to work with the youth? Who would like to work with the children? Who would like to lead a covenant group? But in here today, Paul and I are having our own sort of ministry fair, and we're looking for volunteers as well. So I need a show of hands to find out who will commit with me to stop going to church. Will anyone make this commitment? I see those hands. We need some more hands. Who will sign on the dotted line? Who will stand up to be faithful and say, I will not go to church. I am done going to church. Do I see a hand? I see a few hands. The Spirit has not moved on many of you yet this morning. But the Spirit will move. I'm confident of it. Why am I asking you to stop going to church? Well, it has to do with a little word we find all through the New Testament, it's a Greek word, ekklesia. And before I get rolling on this Greek word, ekklesia, I want to say thank you to my friend, Dr. Torsten Moritz at Bethel Seminary. He told me all the egghead parts of this sermon. For those of you who know Torsten, you can <coughs> congratulate him on the egghead knowledge that he brings to our understanding of ekklesia. Ekklesia is a word that occurs a couple of times in Matthew and all through the New Testament letters, and it's the word that we translate church. Right? What we need to know about this particular Greek term is this was just an ordinary term. This was a term that didn't have any sort of theological or religious significance. This was a term that just meant kind of any kind of gathering where people get together. Acts 19, there's actually a riot that breaks out in Ephesus when Paul is preaching there. And that riot is referred to as ecclesia. And when the people of God are getting together, who've decided to follow Jesus, Paul calls them the ecclesia. So this was not a theological term. The theological term for God's people coming together was synagogue. Now today we think of synagogue as a building on the corner where the uh, Jewish people meet in the name of God. But back then this was not a building. The word synagogue meant the people of God coming together. So we would think that Paul, who's a good Jew, is going to talk about the people of God coming together as synagogue. Why does he use the word ecclesia instead? Well, that's what I'm here to tell you this morning. He uses the word ecclesia because he was trying to do a new and radical thing. There was all sorts of baggage and expectations and assumptions attached to the word synagogue. And he didn't use that, and I think he was being very intentional. 
He was trying to say things have changed. This is a new sort of people of God. We're going to call them the ecclesia. Now, it is the case at this time that the um, assumptions would have been really strong about synagogue. It would have been things such as there's a temple at the center of the people of God. There's a high priest at the center of the people of God. There's a kind of graded holiness where God is in the holy of holies in the temple. Only the high priest can enter. In the inner court of the temple, certain Jews could enter. In the outer court, the Gentiles could be there. There were very clear rules. And we might refer to it as a sort of graded holiness, the good, better, best of the followers of God. Paul doesn't want that sort of baggage attached to the new people of God, and so he calls them the ecclesia. What he's saying is the cross, the resurrection, and Pentecost throughout this idea of a graded holiness. We are not centered anymore around the temple and the high priest. In this new ecclesia, there is a moving center, which is Jesus. And the people of God are at work where Jesus is at work. And Jesus is at work where the people of God are. The center was now out in the world, wherever the people of God were. It wasn't the temple. It wasn't the high priest. Everyone is a priest now. Everyone can come before God. Everyone is called to minister. And I think what Paul is saying here, get out of the temple and hit the streets with Jesus. We are the ecclesia. This is a radical redefinition of what it meant to be the people of God. The centralized synagogue has now become the decentralized ecclesia. The privileges and responsibilities of the high priest are now the privilege, privileges and responsibilities of all who would follow Christ. The power of God poured out from the Holy of Holies when the temple veil was torn in two at his crucifixion, and it landed on the people of God. And we see this at Pentecost. And they received the power of the Holy Ghost to minister. The ground was now level. We are all priests. We have Jesus at the center. We don't need the building. It's a moving center. Now, I want to ask you a question this morning. This is the question of the day. This is the $64 million question this morning. Does the church, as it functions in today's world, look more like the synagogue or the ecclesia? Are we following the moving center because we are the ecclesia sent into the world as the gathering of God's people to do his work? Or are we located in temples with high priests? <laughs> this is our favorite part. If anyone would like a copy of this picture, just email me. I'd be glad to send it out. <laughs> okay, this is, I have a big problem with this because I'm almost positive we look a tiny bit more like a synagogue than the ecclesia. For 2,000 years, I'm not sure we've kind of got a clue about what it is we're supposed to be doing. Amen. Amen. Do you know that it's never been possible to go to church? This has never been an option. Going to church has never been a sort of thing you can do because ecclesia slash church is not a thing you go to. Let's talk about things you go to, just as a little primer here. Do you go to work? Yes. Do you go to school? Yes. Do you go to bed? Yes. Do you go to the mall? Yes. Do you go to the grocery store? Yes. Do you go to jail? Well, you can. <laughs> okay, how about this one? Do you go to life? 
No, you live life. And in the same way, you do not go to church. You are the church. You live church. You breathe church. You sleep church. The people of God are not located in a building at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings exclusively. The people of God, as the church, are out in the world following Jesus, the moving center, to be the church, to be the presence of God. Amen. Now, just in case you all decide not to come back next week to take me up on the offer, I want to say to you that this Sunday morning celebration that we have is a good thing. This Sunday morning celebration facilitates the being of the church. We come together and we say, we need community. We need to be healed. We need to be ministering in the world together. We need to lift up God and worship him. And these are things that happen. It would be hard to find one another, maybe, if we didn't have an opportunity to gather in the name of God and say, let's do community, let's do life, let's do church, let's minister in the name of Jesus. That's what Sunday mornings are for. Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock is the gathering of the people of God so they can go out in the world and be the ecclesia. Amen. Anywhere that we are active in the world, church is happening. Anywhere that the people of God are gathered in the name of God, that's ecclesia. My concern is that when we only go to church, when we think church happens in a certain building, in a certain place, with a certain pastor, at a certain time, 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings, things get a little bit messed up. When we get too centered around the building and the pastor, we mess up what Jesus called us to as the church. And here's some things that happen. The first thing that happens when we say church is 11 on Sundays is we say, well then, I better look good at 11 o'clock on Sundays. Now, of all the churches I've been to, this church is the least likely to say that sort of thing. <laughs> and, and I'm not even going to get into why that would be the case. But most of you have been to other churches, and you know Sunday mornings at 11, you are looking good. You got the Easter hat on Easter. You got the Christmas dress on Christmas. You're not wearing the jeans and the flip-flops. You're wearing the skirt. You got the suit and the tie. Every hair is in place. And... In the circle drive, when you pull up to drop your family off, you have got the ride. You are not showing up in a beater. You are pulling up and you are saying, this is my ride and this is my family and we are looking good at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning because we are going to church for one hour this week. <laughs> or an hour and a half. When I was growing up, we had a nice circle drive and we had our brand new station wagon with wood paneled doors. Oh yeah. Six kids, my mom and dad in the front, dad pulls up to drop us off. We had a little tiny, 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 tiny problem, which was that my dad had laid a bunch of old bedspreads on the garage floor because he had had the car rust-proofed and he didn't want to wreck the garage floor. And when he was backing out of the garage, somehow the bedspreads got caught around the... Is that called an axle? Oh, like you would know. Okay. <laughs> okay, the axle. <laughs> you have other gifts. You have other gifts. This is not one of them. Okay, <laughs> I'm going with Axel. So we drive to church 10 miles with three bedspreads trailing behind the car. You talk about the train of the road filling. <laughs> we pull up in front of the church and there was a green one and a yellow one and a gold one behind the car. We pull up in the circle drive and we're looking good because it's 11 o'clock on Sunday and church is happening and we get out of the car and we're like, oh, our old bedspreads <laughs> followed us to church. I was very happy about this occasion. My dad was not so happy because Sunday mornings at 11, you do not drag bedspreads behind you to church. Just in case you're wondering, not a good thing. Besides looking good on the outside, 
clothing, hair, that sort of thing. You have to look good on the outside in terms of the smile, the appearance. Yes, everything's great. Shake hands, meet some strangers, smile at people, even if your marriage, your children, your life, your job, your finances are falling apart. At 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings when we go to church, we're good. We're smiling. Everything's great. And I grew up in a church filled with people who had marriage problems, teenagers struggling with issues. But on Sunday mornings at 11, nobody talked about it, nobody knew about it. We were all fine. Thank you. It's good to see you today. I like your hat. Those bedspreads were interesting. <laughs> so the first thing that happens when we think church is something that happens that we go to. It's an event at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. As we say, well, then at 11 o'clock, I look good. And it's so cool because only for an hour a week do I have to look good. The second thing that happens is we say, the church better look good. Greg better be interesting. Norm better not mess up. Everybody should hit the notes. It better start on time. It better end on time. And it better be big. There should be lots and lots of people there. This is what church is. It's 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. Let's pack them in. Everything better be up to par. I went to, worked at a couple of different churches that were so obsessed with the appearances from the stage that they actually brought in extra clothes every week in case you needed to change outfits. Like, oh, I, this person I'm standing next to, we don't match. Like, this would ever happen here, okay? <laughs> so they were, I've seen, I saw people get in fights in the green room behind the stage over what people were wearing. This is insane. But you know what? When church is at 11 o'clock and that's all the church there is, you better look good. And the church better look good. And the stage better look good. And it better be big. In the late 70s, a couple of authors, experts on church growth, wrote a couple of books that put forth something called the homogeneous unit principle. And the idea was, if you want to have a big church, and church happens at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings, and you've got to have a lot of people in the building, then you better do certain things to make that happen. One of them being, have everyone in your church be the same ethnicity and be from the same socioeconomic demographic, Look the same, have the same kids, same car, same house, live in the same neighborhood. Because everybody wants to be around people just like them. Then we don't get challenged. So we feel really comfortable from 11 to 12. The problem with the homogeneous unit principle is that it assumes that having lots of people packed in a building for an event on an hour at 11 is a higher principle than the idea that Jesus called us to a radical reconciliation so that we could show the world a kind of love that they have never, ever, ever seen or experienced before. Amen. So here's what happens. If I better look good, and if the church better look good, and if the church better be big, what ends up happening is that Sunday mornings become for me a time when I become a good-looking spectator. At least I hope a good-looking spectator. On the good hair days. The activity and the information that are coming from the stage become the most important thing about church. My activity the rest of the time is just plain not all that important. Because I've already done church. Thank you. I went at 11 o'clock on Sunday. When did you go? Oh, you didn't go this week. This is how this plays out. I work at a homeless shelter. I volunteer on Wednesdays. And a woman came in this week, and she was looking for a place to stay. Well, the homeless shelter I work at does all the intake for all Ramsey County shelters. And then we refer people out to uh, two churches a month that take the overflow. And a woman came in this week. She had three kids. She had the oldest one with her. He was probably 16 years old. And she had two other kids, and she said, we, we need a place to stay. Well, all of the Ramsey County homeless shelters were full, and the two churches only had two open spaces each. So there was no place for four people to go together. And so the intake supervisor said to this woman, sorry, we don't have anywhere 
for you to stay. And so she left, and we did manage to get her into the Dorothy Day Center where she could sleep on the floor in a shelter that was designed just to hold men. So she's going to go with her three kids and stay in this place. And I'm thinking, the church in America has enough resources. Everyone sitting in church at 11 o'clock on Sundays, if we pooled our resources, we have enough to love the homeless and provide space for them. We have enough to meet the needs. We have enough to minister to the prisoners and bring hope to the sick and encouragement to the oppressed. This is what Jesus announced his ministry with in Luke 4. This is what he came to do. And he has given us and blessed us who call ourselves followers of Christ with enough resources to solve these problems. But when we think that church happens at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings, then we miss out on the fact that there are other things about being the church the rest of the week. The second thing that happens is that we think that our information that we take in is all that's required to live the Christian life. John Perkins, who is a social rights activist through the 60s and 70s and who's now a pastor and has done a ton of community development in poor communities, tells the story of leading a workshop and talking about the fact that Jesus requires certain things of us in order to be his followers, that he's asked us to be active in his name, to be reconciled. And one of the people in the workshop raised his hand and said, hey, as far as I can see in the Bible, what I have to do is just believe that Jesus died on the cross for me, and that's the whole gospel. That's it. And then he told the story of his grandma, who had spent her whole life in the church every Sunday at 11 o'clock, and she believed that Jesus had died on the cross for her sins, she just had one teeny tiny little problem, which was that she was racist against black people. And John Perkins, who's African-American, stood up to the task and challenged and said, well, in 1 John 2.9 it says, whoever says, I am in the light, while hating a brother and sister is still in darkness. And everyone in the room started debating it, and everyone in the room, almost without exception, was arguing and saying, yeah, maybe she shouldn't be racist, but stop. Doggone it, she's still going to heaven. Everything's still great. And he was trying to make the point that James makes, which is faith without works is dead. If we come at 11 o'clock and just take in information and it changes nothing about who we love and how we love and why we love, what has the power of God done in our lives? And I want to stand with Luther and say we are not saved by works. We are saved for good works. But we must ask the question, if we do not see the good works, what is our salvation? Is it even there? James says faith without works is dead. First John says, if we don't obey God's commandments, the truth is not in us. And it would be easy to look at the church today and say maybe the church is dead if we don't see the good works. And I can look into my life often and say I'm missing the good works. I was saved for good works. This is what God has called and empowered me to. When we get in the situation where church is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning and where I have to look good and the church has to look good and the church has to be big and I become a good-looking spectator, we miss out on the fact that the ecclesia involves a life of ministry, healing, reconciliation, transformation, community, sacrifice. And all of these things become optional for us. If what we are doing right here, right now, is all there is to church, we are missing out on the transformation where Christ comes in and says, you are a priest. You can meet with me. I have called you into the world. You can minister in my name. I will give you power. And when you mess up, I am there for you. Let's go. Let's go and be the ecclesia. 
Jesus says. The kingdom cannot be fit into 90 minutes each week. The ecclesia is way bigger than that. So I'm going to turn the easy question on Paul. The easy question being, Paul, how do we do this? Is there any advice that you can give us this morning? It's a good question, Sandra. <clears throat> You've publicly insulted my mechanical abilities. You've, it's true. Yours, I can tell, preached half of my part of the sermon, but it's still a good question. <laughs> I got to go first. <laughs> Ecclesia, a term apparently chosen that was vacuous because it was waiting to be filled in. Not a term, not synagogue, which we already had the baggage. We know what that would mean. But a term that just meant gathering. It could mean a riotous gathering of pagans in the Ephesus incident. But Jesus, I'll submit, had a different content that he wanted to fill this word in with. Matthew records Jesus using this term for the first time, as we have it in our New Testaments in Matthew 16, verse 18. And here Jesus begins to fill in his vision for the content of this word ecclesia. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Two things Jesus is beginning to be very clear on, what his ecclesia is going to be. First, it's going to be his ecclesia. He's going to build it. He has something in mind. He has a vision for the gathering of his people. And secondly, he lets us know right off the bat, it is a kingdom movement. Because it's an alternative kingdom to a kingdom already set up in this world that somehow got a hold of this world and was run, is run by the enemy of God. And the enemy has a center and it's got a city, you can't see it, but it's everywhere. And it's leading people into a place called hell. And Jesus says, the thing about my ecclesia is, when it gets grown and mobilized and sent out, it will find hell wherever it can, and it will tear down every city gate that hell represents. And there'll be nothing left standing when God's kingdom has come to this planet. Amen? So Jesus has a vision. And what's interesting is to see how Jesus builds this vision. Two things I want to touch on. What he didn't do that some might expect he would have done and what he did do that maybe seemed a little odd. Here's what he didn't do. He clearly didn't read any good church growth strategy books. All right? Clearly he did not do that. He didn't read Mega Church Made Easy because almost everything Jesus did was difficult. He chose the path of self-sacrifice, not self-centeredness. He chose the self path of humility, not self-aggrandizement. And finally, he chose the path of execution and martyrdom, as did 11 of his 12 disciples that we know of. He didn't read the book, How to Grow a Big Church by Not Offending People, because almost everywhere Jesus went, he offended somebody. And wasn't it usually the case that he offended all the right people, people he shouldn't have offended, and the people he should have been offending, according to that culture, the poor, which didn't matter, the leprous who were unclean, the sinners, the tax gatherers, the prostitutes who were shameful, Jesus apparently never offended them. They seemed to really like to hang out with Jesus. It was the people he shouldn't have offended that tried to avoid him and trap him into situations. Instead, it seems, Jesus read the probably little red book, How to Get a Large Crowd of People to Follow You and Then Freak Them Out So Bad They Go Home. Because he always did that. Did Greg co-authored that book. Yeah, Greg. <laughs> Greg's following Jesus here. 
Luke chapter 14, John chapter 6. It's happening all the time. Jesus gets a crowd of people. A church growth strategist would say, well done, charismatic figure. We got the movement going. Now sit them down and let them sign in on the dotted line of church membership. This is the way you do it. Jesus turns to them, and in that moment, when he could have capitalized on it, he weeds them. He says some radical thing like, unless you want to hate your father, mother, sister, brother, oh, and by the way, sit in the electric chair and throw the switch. At least that's what it would have meant to theirs ears if you heard, pick up your cross and follow me daily. He does that sort of thing. And in John chapter 6, it says when he's done weeding out the people, even his 12, he looks and turns to him and says, aren't you leaving? Peter, always the bold one, steps up and says, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. So although Jesus is constantly challenging and making people see very clearly what it means to be called to his kingdom, he ends up radically successful because he does two things. At the end of his life, he has a committed core group of disciples who in a few years will die for him. They'll prove their faithfulness with their death. And in a few generations, this little backwater Galilean kingdom movement that started with a handful of men and women has literally taken over the Roman Empire has become the official religion. I don't know that Jesus was so excited about the official part, but his mustard seed grew as he promised it would. So I want to ask the far more important question, how did Jesus do that? What was his ecclesia? It didn't depend on who he called, because who he called was, was very odd, at least by the standards of that day. He didn't call religious leaders particularly. There are plenty of priests and Sadducees and Pharisees around, people who know the Torah, the, 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 our Old Testament, people who knew God, knew about God, people who could have led a movement, been good small group leaders, had the Bible in hand. Instead, Jesus chose fishermen. Book of Acts says he chose uneducated people. He chose Matthew, a tax gatherer. Trust me, in that culture, that's worse than saying the IRS man. A tax gatherer was someone who had sided against, on Rome's side against the Jewish people, meaning he was a traitor, and plus he was probably skimming off the top, a greedy man. So a greedy traitor became one of Jesus' 12 inner circle. He didn't choose the clergy. He didn't choose... He chose common people, but not even the right common people. He chose shameful common people. Matthew. He chose women. Not the thing you choose in that culture if you want to impress people as a prophet of God. But he had women, we know, traveling with him town to town. And not just women, but women of questionable character. Mary of Magdalene, seven demons, alluding to the fact that maybe her former profession wasn't quite the thing a prophet of God would want to be hanging around. And yet he chose people, common, shameful people. Even once he got them together, they didn't just dress up nice. These were people who on the last night of Jesus' life still hadn't got the message that they were to wash each other's feet. Jesus had to do that. These were the people who instead spent their time arguing on who gets to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus when he comes in his kingdom trying to ace the other ten out. These were the guys who when they met enemies on the road, instead of praying for them and turning the other cheek, they said, Jesus, I got an idea. Let's do that fire thing from heaven and fry them. These were the guys who on the last night of Jesus' life of pouring three years into this little ecclesia, the last supper they're having, and they're all saying, Jesus, we're there with you, and Peter's going, I'll die with you. In the next six hours, one of them turns them over to Rome with a kiss, 
One of them, Peter, says, I never knew the guy. And the other ten split. It wasn't a very successful ecclesia if you judge it by the quality and character of the people. And yet, I'm really glad because that means Jesus chose people like you and me. Imperfect people, real people, sinful people, self-centered people. And Jesus takes them and changes the world with them. Here's how he did it. Four simple elements. Not easy, but very clear. Jesus began by taking these simple sinful people and saying, you need conversion. You are in a kingdom. You may not even know about this kingdom, but this kingdom has an enemy and he's gutting your soul. He's tearing your life out day by day. You think it's self. It's really Satan. Let me take you out of that kingdom and transfer you into my kingdom, the kingdom of God. Paul puts it this way in Colossians. God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. It starts with conversion something you and I could never do on our own. Greg put it well last week. All we can do in our conversion is look at Jesus. Simply say, I've been at the center. You must be at the center. And as Greg put it, as we look at Jesus, his promise is, I will make you look like Jesus. As that spirit gets inside, we begin to be transformed. So Jesus converts people, takes them out of one kingdom a dead and dying kingdom and puts them into a kingdom of God filled with life, hope, and joy. And then he begins to heal them. Luke, in the book of Acts, describes Jesus' entire three-year ministry with this summary. God the Father anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. Jesus was about a healing ministry. Get them into the kingdom and then work on their lives. Heal them physically, lame, blind, dead, raise them. Heal them emotionally, because they've been in a kingdom that's abused them. So I will embrace them and love them, even the shameful people. In fact, mostly the shameful people will I embrace and heal the inner wounds of rejection and hopelessness. And finally, heal them spiritually. They've been in a kingdom that taught them that sin was good. They didn't see it destroying their souls. I will liberate them and heal their spirits. Finally, Jesus doesn't leave us as simply converted, healed individuals. But step three, he says, I will knit them together. I will make covenant community out of this ecclesia. If I don't, it's simply a lot of healed individuals who are not yet a cohesive unit. There's no ecclesia yet. It's got to be covenant community. And so he dies to knit together one new man, Paul says, one new human being, out of all of those who come and said yes to Jesus Christ. That means small groups. That means he's, he gets 12 here and, and sets them off to build his church once he's gone. And he moves to this town and knits together some followers and creates a small group there. And out of these small groups of loving, supporting, passionate, committed believers who are actually in each other's lives, being ecclesia together, Jesus then takes the last step. Because right now we'd have converted, healed, knit together communities but those could quickly turn into self-centered bless-me clubs. He has another thing in mind. The whole reason he's done this, he's got an enemy's kingdom that needs to be torn down. And he sends now these ecclesias into the world to do kingdom-advancing ministry. He knows two things. If they minister, their healing will be complete. Because he sends them out, not as perfect people, but as wounded healers, as Dwayne Polk told us several months ago. Wounded healers who, in the very act of ministering, of pouring their lives out, 
are in that very process further healed. He knows the, the, the example of the Dead Sea in, in, the, in the Holy Land where a lot of life pouring in through the Jordan River, none going out, and therefore a sea of death. It's got to be God's life pouring in and pouring out in our ministry. And secondly, he knows if we don't do that, his body, his only body left since he ascended 2,000 years ago, is paralyzed. His hands want to work. His mouth wants to speak love. His legs want to go places. His arms want to embrace. And if we say no to that, if we, both individually and collectively, are not about ministering, pouring our lives out, we have literally cut the nerve cord from our head, Jesus Christ, to our body, the ecclesia, and nothing happens. But as we listen to that head and become his hands, his feet, his mouth, his embrace, we literally do the, the work and the ministry that Jesus' five-foot-something body did a few thousand years ago, and we continue with millions of people. Amen. Amen. And so, conversion, healing, community, and ministry is what Jesus was all about. That's his ecclesia. It's not to say build, big buildings can't be used of God, and certainly some people look good in big hats, right? We will admit that. For example... Thank you to Dave Sanders' husband for that piece of... Uh... You started it. <laughs> so, Sandra, what do we do? Okay, I would like to say, before I get back into what do we do, that I was trying to really serve God by pulling together that picture of Greg in the big hat. And somehow the entire video team, Paul, Eddie, and my own husband, turned on me and surprised me in the first service with that attractive picture. And we will not be emailing those out, no matter how many people request it. Okay. I will. <laughs> okay, moving on. I'm looking again for volunteers. Who will stop going to church? Who will commit today? Sign on the dotted line and say, I will not go to church. All right, we've got more volunteers. The ecclesia is growing. You never could go to church. This is not something new we're coming up with today. This is Woodland Hills trying to say, hey, how about we correct about 1,700 years of wrong practice and remind us that we come together in the name of Jesus to celebrate, connect, be healed, and we go out into the community to be the ecclesia. Amen. Come to the celebration, but leave and be the church. And this morning, I talked about the kingdom opportunities going on to the lobby. I want to invite you to do three things. The first one, the first thing that Jesus did was called people to conversion, to move themselves from the center and put Jesus at the center. And right here, we have some people after the service at the table to your left who can tell you what it means to be part of this ecclesia with Jesus at the center. If you want to get involved in ministry, in small groups, if you need healing, there's people who signed up this weekend to stand in the lobby and shake your hand and take your name and say, Yes, you can stop going to church. We'd love to have you minister with the youth and with the children. We'd love to have you be one of our, in one of our support groups or covenant groups. The third thing I want to invite you to do to be part of this riotous ecclesia is to go beyond the church walls to the homeless centers, to your places of work, to your neighborhoods, because I'm telling you, there's people in all of the suburbs, not just in the city, who need the loving touch of Jesus. Go into your schools, Go into your grocery stores. Go to the mall and be the ecclesia. This is the calling. The calling is beyond Sunday morning. The calling is beyond 90 minutes a week. And actually, who of us here is not looking for something to live and to die for? Something worth getting out of bed in the morning? Amen. 
And this is what Jesus gave us. It's one thing to get out of bed in time to be at church at 11 o'clock on Sunday. It's quite another thing to get out of bed every day knowing Jesus has called me in community with others to move with him at the center and to transform the world through the power of the Spirit. So find Jesus at the table over here. Find a way to be the church in the lobby and then go out of these doors and be the ecclesia. This is the calling. This is worth living and dying for. And remember, you can go to bed, you can go to work, you can go to school, and you can go to jail, but you cannot go to church. <laughs> Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning that some of us maybe have just thought about this for the first time, and so we have to process it for a while. And you are so patient with us and so gracious. And if we haven't been doing anything beyond 11 on Sundays, and if we've been messing up in other things, you are so with us. And you have called us, God, called us and said, I will heal you. I will give you grace. I will transform you. And so I pray that each of us would feel that grace and would have the courage to come to you and say, I'm here. I'm going to do more than 11 o'clock. Or I need healing. Or I do need community. I pray that for each person here. And this is why it's so important that your spirit works individually in each one of us. And I thank you for that. And I just ask that we wouldn't run away from that voice that's saying, I have a calling. Go and be the church. And I pray these things in the name of that powerful and transforming Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless. Don't forget to go to the lobby.